And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're going to be talking about what genetic testing can and can't tell us. I found this fascinating, and I think you will as well. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. If there's one sentence that I want your listeners to remember from this entire program, it's the following. Every single patient who has had PGD and PGS should have a CVS or an amnio to make sure the diagnosis was correct. I don't care how old they are. I don't care what the results showed. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want. You can also subscribe to the podcast via whatever app you're using to listen to. And if you're listening to it through your computer, you can go to our the uh, website, our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show, and subscribe there as well. This show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. They are pleased to offer their IVF Greenlight program, providing discounts of up to 50% on select IVF products. All cash-paying patients are eligible, and unlike other programs, there are no financial requirements. To get more information, go to their website, IVF Greenlight. Dot com, Or, of course, you can talk with your reproductive endocrinologist as well. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in combination with the DNA of prospective sperm donors to provide the to provide the client with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility with 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey. RMA New Jersey maintains an IVF delivery rate well above the national average. Later in the show, I'll tell you about some of our other gold sponsors. But in addition to our gold sponsors, we also have other sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an infertility or service or infertility or adoption service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the Find a Professional page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, years in operation, just a host of factors that we think are important. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today we're going to be talking genetic testing, the ins and the outs, what it can and what it can't do. Our guest is Dr. Mark Evans. He is the medical director at Comprehensive Genetics and professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. He is also the president of the Fetal Medicine Foundation of America, president of the International Fetal Medicine and Surgery Society Foundation, and past president of the Central Central Association of Obstetricians and Gynecologist. He has won numerous national research awards, including the President's Award for Achievement by the Society of Gynecologic Investigation. Welcome, Dr. Evans, to Creating a Family. Dawn, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, this is the third or fourth time we've done this over the past decade or so. And I was just going to uh, say, well, I should say welcome back, since you have been here <laughs> talking about a number of You guys have done a wonderful job in helping to get information out there to couples who desperately need it. Oh, thank you so much. That is our mission, and, and yes, we are really, we are really proud of our growth and 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 all of that. Well, I want to talk about all things genetic testing, and and uh, it's becoming increasingly common. And 
as we were, as, our, as the questions rolled in for this show, it became clear that we really needed a, a framework for talking about it because genetic testing covers such a wide period of time that we can test our our gene our genomes our genome, um, both before conception uh, with IVF, uh, prenatally after conception but before, uh, but before birth, and then also after birth. So we're going to talk, if we have time, we may or may not get to the after birth part. I mean, in other words, you know, testing for adults and things such as that, that may have to be a, the topic of another show. But let's start with genetic testing of embryos. We're going to kind of follow this chronologically. So in IVF, uh, embryos are created. If, if, they are, if, if IVF is successful, we will have embryos that are creating. And increasingly now, it is being suggested that, uh, that infertility patients test their embryos for, uh, for the genetics. But before we get started in, 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 the, uh, in what, can, what we can do and what we can't do at this stage, Let's get our terminology straight. We we hear terms like our, our acronyms like PGS, PGD, CCS. What do these mean, and what's the difference between them? Well, the D stands for diagnosis, and in my parlance, that means you have a definitive answer, and that is reasonably accurate for Mendelian disorders like Tay-Sachs disease, sickle cell disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, spinal muscular atrophy. <clears throat> the S stands for screening, and that applies pretty much to all of the chromosomal disorders in which you have a presumptive diagnosis, kind of like the presumptive nominee of the political parties these days, but it's not confirmed, and it still has to be followed up with definitive testing, which also applies, by the way, to the diagnostic tests, because when you're dealing with only one or two cells, the chance of an error is far too high to take it as a gospel answer. Now, PGD was first developed in the late 1980s, really got going in 1990, <coughs> excuse me, got going in 1990 for simple genetic disorders like sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, where you had a single known mutation to go after. But we learned, in fact, even the first prenatal PGD for cystic fibrosis was clinically wrong. They actually got it wrong. Huh. And, and I, I, without sounding nasty, because it's not meant to be, but if you go to buy a car every year, this this year's model is the greatest thing ever on earth, and you come back two years later and they're trashing what was two years ago because now they have the world's best thing. I mean, there was a time, and I remember lecturing at an IVF conference, oh, about 15 years ago, where they were talking about the results of their PG, PGD and PGS programs, and I said, wait a minute. Because at that point, the mistake rate was close to 6%. And I said, you're telling me that the chance of an abnormality following a normal PGD is actually greater than following an abnormal quad screen, in which case the, in which case the results were only 2% that it was abnormal. What, was a quad, what is a quad screen? Quad screen was a, is a blood test that is done at around 16 weeks of gestation. It is used mostly for Down syndrome screening tests. It's now been supplanted by the first trimester tests. <coughs> but the, that, sorry, the quad screen was done at about 16 weeks of gestation, and it was used as a screening test for Down syndrome and a couple of other serious genetic disorders like trisomy 18. And it was and a blood you, test? A, a, blood a maternal test. blood test. Maternal blood gotcha. test. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if a woman had an abnormal quad screen, the chance that she was actually carrying a baby with that problem was only about 2%. So, in fact, a 6% abnormality rate following a normal PGD was far worse than a 2% following an abnormal quad screen. Now, there have been rapid advances in PG, PGD and PGS, and so don't let me be seen as saying it's, it's not a useful test. It can be very useful, but it's still fundamentally the equivalent of the Gallup poll. It alters odds. It doesn't actually give you the definitive election results. If you want the definitive election results, we still need a substantial amount of fetal material, which can be done by amniocentesis, <coughs> done typically at about 16 weeks, or chorionic fillus sampling, done typically at about 12 weeks. And CVS has a lot more utility here because there's so much more genetic material and even the tiniest amount of solid tissue than there is in 30 cc's of amniotic fluid. So we not only do that testing earlier, but the turnaround time for most things is shorter. 
Okay, let me make sure I'm understanding. What you're saying, you're comparing the prenatal test, the CVS uh, chronic VLI sampling and amniocentesis, to the tests that are done on embryos pre, pre-transfer. You have the embryos, they have yet to be transferred. And you're saying that the mistake rate, error rate for uh, uh, false positives and false negatives, I would assume, um, is higher, which would make sense because you're you're testing far fewer cells. Even even when you're testing now, we've moved uh, genetic testing of embryos from the three days uh, the three day old embryo to most often, although not always, to the uh, five or even sometimes well, usually about five days. So you have substantially larger number of of embryonic cells you're looking at which I would assume would would reduce your error rate. Well, they're still generally looking at just a few cells. Even if you're doing it on a blastocyst stage embryo? Yes, they're still only looking at a few cells, and and it only is good as if you then freeze the embryo and wait a month to get the analyses done. You have two entirely different... yeah, but that's happening more often and, and, and is actually yeah, being supported by a great deal of research, which would right. indicate that there are some advantages of waiting anyway. It does require an a, a embryology lab that's uh, you know uh, very qualified at freezing, but still. Um, and I'm, so, okay, I'm, totally so, support, I'm totally supportive of that, but what okay. I'm saying is the, your patient, your, the, our, your audience needs to understand that there are significant differences in what can be done with PGS techniques that are going to be with a fresh embryo transfer as opposed to those that are going to be with a freezing and retransfer one or two months later. Okay, but, so even still, we... but even still, you still have probably about a 1% mistake rate. And that is with both PGS or PGD. Okay. Correct. Let's, before we, we move off of this, let's talk about CCS and, and see, because that, that, that term is also thrown around. Basically... Uh, the, the, the concept of doing sequencing of the embryo is brand new and needs to be validated, but is potentially very exciting. But the big problem with all of the PGS, PGD techniques is that they take cells from the periphery of the embryo. And we know that even in the first week after conception, that some cells do not divide properly, and the embryo tends to push those to the outside. Well, those are the ones that tend to be biopsied. And there is a lot of experience, unfortunately not as much of it as should be has been published, where people have looked at the outcome of embryos. For example, my friend Mark Hughes, and I I really have tried to get him to publish this for years, has a series now of at least 300 cases of embryos that had PGD for a Mendelian disorder like sickle cell or Tay-Sachs or cystic fibrosis, that were found to be normal, that were transplanted back and produced a normal, healthy child. He then looked at the probes for the chromosomes, like Down syndrome, trisomy uh, 18, 13, et cetera, and found that at least 20% of those embryos would have been thrown away as being abnormal on the basis of a PGD-PGS. And what this says to me is that PGD-PGS tends to significantly overcall the number of abnormalities compared to what is clinically relevant. And this is becoming even more important now that we're beginning to see more and more mosaics on these uh, sequencing and microarray type analyses, and people don't know what to do with them. In fact, you hang on a minute because we do have some questions specific to sure. mosaics. So let me back up just so our audience understands. I want you to explain what CCS is. It stands for Comprehensive Chromosomal Screening. It is a type, as I understand it, of pre-implantation genetic screening, PGS. It's a type of that. But can you explain if there is, if, is it, how, how is it distinguished from PGS? It is, well, it's part of PGS. It's the, the suggestion is that it is more comprehensive and has fewer mistakes. Let, let me use this analogy. <clears throat> if you watch an old-style television set, the number of pixels, the number of dots that make up the entire picture on the screen, the old sets have about 500,000 pixels. A high-definition television set has about 2 million. And the reason that the picture is much more clear is that you have four times the amount of information for the same space as you did with the old television sets. When we do a 
<coughs> there's a technique that we use postnatally that I want to explain first, and I'll come back to show you how we apply it prenatal uh, that we use at CVS or Amnio that how we can use it for PGD called a microarray, which is basically a high definition carrier type. And the difference in clarity between the regular carrier type, you know, the pair of ones, the pair of twos, the pair of threes, et cetera, and the microarray is a 30-fold increase in clarity. And what we're seeing is that when you look at the chromosomes per se <coughs> uh, under the microscope, the smallest bit of information that we can see that is gained or missing has about 7 million base pairs, 7 megabases. The microarray gets down to about 200,000. So it's about a 30-fold increase in clarity. And what we have been able to see are gains and losses of material, many of which can produce profound genetic abnormalities, such as uh, Prader-Willi syndrome, Angelman syndrome, uh, uh, Williams syndrome, Cree-du-Chat, uh, the 1P36 deletion, uh, Miller-Deeker. These are all very serious genetic disorders but their gain or loss of material is below the level of resolution. Now, people have been talking about doing these microarray analyses, or the new name is the CCS, as you describe, and eventually we'll be going to complete sequencing of the embryo, which gets us down to single base pairs. <coughs> the problem is these take time, they're very expensive, and they still suffer from the fact that the abnormal cells get shunted to the periphery. And what we are learning, because I believe that every single one of us is to some degree or another a mosaic. A mosaic means an individual who has two different cell lines within their body composition. For example, <coughs> a woman who is a Turner mosaic, which is a common cause of infertility, started out as either a 46XX or a 46XY, and somewhere early on in embryogenesis, one of those X chromosomes got lost. So she has a cell line that is still 46XX, but another cell line that is 45 with only one X chromosome. And depending upon the proportion of the normal cells to the Turner cells, determines how much of the clinical symptomatology of Turner syndrome she, she might have. Now, at the molecular level and PGD level, we are seeing things we've never seen before. And this is a common problem from a technology assessment point of view. But if you're the clinician trying to figure out what do you do for the patient who's sitting in front of you, this can be extremely problematic. Now, I have lived through, on my end of things, through prenatal diagnosis, <coughs> several generations of these new technologies. And the truth is it takes several years to build up enough case experience to know whether or not something that would be important if it were one test applies equally when it's done with a different test. And so a lot what's happening is that the use of these new techniques has been leading to <laughs> these IVF programs throwing out a number of embryos that under the old level of technology they would have tran they would have transferred, most of which would turn out to be normal kids. Well, but when this okay, let me read Renee's question, then we'll come back to that. This is from Renee. She said, "I recently read an article in the New York Times about mosaic embryos, those with both normal and abnormal cells, and the controversy over whether or not to transfer them, especially if they are the only embryos someone has." Some normal births have resulted, but there are still a lot of questions about the ethics of transferring potentially abnormal embryos. What kind of work is being done to sharpen these screenings to account for situations like this? Um, is there a framework? Very nice I'll come back to the second part of that question. Okay, let's deal with this part. Yeah, She okay. raises a very good question. However, I would make the point that IVF programs have been transferring back potentially abnormal embryos since IVF began. The only question is with what level of certainty. I was just going to say the difference is now we have some tests that will indicate it, but in the past, other than just eyeballing it and saying it doesn't, you know, and the assumption was even if it didn't look like a strong embryo that it wouldn't implant. So, I mean, now we have a test, something 
what, how accurate it is is another question. But we have something that tells us that 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 this this embryo may potentially have a problem. So I think that's why it's an issue now. And right. It, 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 but, but I'm saying the principles are still the same, okay. which is that there always is a risk of uncertainty. The question is how much is that uncertainty? How certain are we of what the uncertainty is that we're looking for? And can we go ahead and test for it? The, if a woman has 100 embryos that are, that are been tested and 95 of them are normal, then obviously the five that are questionable go to the back of the bus. Right. On the other hand, if she has had 10 embryos harvest, 10 embryos tested and, only, and none of them are considered normal and some of them have, you know, very high likelihood abnormalities such as trisomy 16, and one of them has a mosaic for a gain or loss in chromosome 12, okay, A, what's the chance that's real? And B, if we know what we're looking for, we can at least wait and do CVS and find out if it's there or not. So that's what I meant was we, we're, we're learning with the microarray on the level of standard prenatal diagnosis that there are some things that we see that are guaranteed to be accurate and bad, some things that are guaranteed to be accurate and good, some things that have a 95% chance of an abnormality, some an 80% chance of a clinical abnormality, and some a 2% chance of a clinical abnormality. <coughs> so it makes the counseling far more difficult. Yeah. And, I, and basically you can think of it as job security for people like myself who are board-certified geneticists trying to help couples work through this uh, and this is only going to, and there's going to be a period of, I would estimate, five to eight years where we work through the, you know, 200 most common of these mosaics and figure out which ones do I have to worry about and which ones don't I really have to worry about. When they do testing on um, on embryos, how often does how how common is it for the results to come back showing a, a mosaic uh, chromosomes? I think uh, I'm, I'm, I, I can't give you an exact percentage on that because it keeps changing, but it is very common, particularly in high risk patients, that more than half the embryos tested come back abnormal. Now, now that we have a new toy to play with, which is a new, the new this new magnifying glass that we've been talking about. <clears throat> that number is probably going to go up by fifty percent. And so of if, the if, of the of the mosaics, and you may not know the answer, but has there been research that says of the embryos that have been tested and shown to be mosaic, if they have been transferred, what are the odds that the child will have no symptoms uh, of that uh, of that abnormality, either they, because the embryo has self-corrected. Uh, and that's the the part that I think you were talking about. One way of self-correcting, anyway, is for the um, embryo uh, at that point. I guess it would be the fetus or the zygote to to push the abnormal cells to the outer layer. The uh, what is that? The uh, trophectoderm layer. Right. I mean, that's ex that's exactly my point. Okay. Well, the, but do you know anything? Do, do we know how often that happens? Has there been any okay. research? Okay. We do not have enough. We do not have enough data to make any statistics reliable. But it looks like most of these mosaic embryos turn out to be perfectly normal, clinically. I mean, and, the, and that's based on research that's been sh that's been done. Small number of cases, but not enough to be okay. reliable yet. Okay, so yeah, so okay, so from a patient standpoint, I mean, in a, in a way, all this testing, uh, genetic testing, particularly the prenatal and the and the embryonic testing, it puts. It's a blessing because we get information, and as you point out, sometimes we get very useful information. We can tell if an embryo is is going to, you know, have a very high percentage of being abnormal, you know, trisomy 13 and others that are easy to determine. So that's really useful information, and particularly for older patients where that's more common. But it also, all this information, as you say, it makes counseling so difficult because if you you come up and you have, it's one thing if you've got five good embryos that there's no indication of abnormality, but what if you don't? And then you have to throw in the fact that for many patients, actually most patients are paying out of pocket for this. 
Correct. And so, it, and so now you, they have already paid for an IVF cycle with genetic testing, which we're going to come back to that in a minute and talk about the cost. And they have to make a decision at that point of, of whether to go forward and run the risk or to start all over. And, and most often that means incurring those same costs all over again. So it's a double-edged sword from a patient's well, let, standpoint. Well, let me, let me, let me, if there's one sentence that I want your listeners to remember from this entire program, it's the following. Every single patient who has had PGD and PGS should have a CVS or an amnio to make sure that diagnosis was correct. I don't care how old they are. I don't care what the results showed. All these tech, the techniques that we've been talking about are all, as I said, the Gallup poll. They alter odds. They're not the definitive answer. And in fact, with the microarray that we do on the CVS, which we are finding a significant abnormality in 1% of all patients, regardless of their background, regardless of their age, everybody who's pregnant, even the 22-year-old, has a high enough risk to, to consider to be offered having this, this diagnostic testing. So the fact that the argument that, well, she's paid for the PGS, it, why does she have to pay for the CVS, is my answer is everybody needs to, to make sure that they're having a healthy child. Okay, so that's, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, all right, let's go back because we're still, at the, the, we're still at the part of the program where we're talking prenatal. Uh, not prenatal, I'm sorry, um, uh, pre, uh, pre-transfer. Pre-implantation, uh, sure. Pre-implantation, yes. Um, all right, I just mentioned the cost, so let's talk about that. This is a real issue for patients. You know, the average cost of IVF is, what, twelve to 15000 That's without genetic testing. So how much does genetic testing add to the cost? Just generally, you'll have to give me a range, I realize. It is my yeah. understanding, and I don't do the lab work, and I bought, by the way, I also don't do IVF, uh, is that it adds about 2000 to $2,500 to the cost of the IVF cycle. And that doing the CVS to confirm it costs between two and three thousand dollars, depending upon what you're doing. And what, uh, under what circumstances? And you may not know the answer to this, but under what circumstances would health insurance more likely cover the cost of of pre-implantation genetic testing? That is highly variable from state to state, and highly variable by indication. And I'm not an expert on that. Okay, and then and the same question with CVS is CVS more likely to be covered by health insurance? Yes, uh, CVS is a well-known procedure. Uh, insurance. The, the the mantra of insurance companies is always to collect premiums and try not to pay benefits. So as we every time we try to expand <coughs> what coverage should be available for new technologies, there's always some pushback. But eventually they give give in once there's enough demand against it. But with CVS, and we'll, we, this is actually for the latter part of the show, but has CVS reached the point now that if you have, if you have no indication of potential problems or age being the, the primary one, if you're over the age of 35, I think insurance is more likely to cover it. But if you're, if you're a young woman, would uh, insurance, and you have no other indications? Well, that actually, that's problem. no longer true because the American – the American College of OBGYN has just issued a practice bulletin in May of 2016 that basically says that every single woman who's having a CVS or an amnio should be offered a microarray. And secondly, it has been the college's policy for over a decade that all women, regardless how old they are, should be offered the opportunity to have definitive testing. And the, and the work on microarrays that have come out over the past five years have shown that with a one in a hundred minimum abnormality rate, that corresponds to the classic risk of a 38-year-old, and this applies even to younger women. So as far as I am concerned, and in fact I have a paper in press at the American Journal of OBGYN that states this quite clearly as a clinical opinion, that every single pregnant patient, no matter how old they are, should be able to have diagnostic testing. And from that, it follows that their insurance should be obligated to pay for it. There will be some resistance to this. There'll be some fights, but eventually it will be accepted. And we've seen the same principle happen a dozen times in my career. 
Okay, and let me go back to Renee's question. And she said, um, is there a framework? Renee was asking about the mosaicism. She said, is there a framework in place for patients who, either because they're the only embryos they have or because they have particular moral or religious beliefs, want to transfer these embryos? I'm not exactly sure what she's asking. I think she means, um, or let me ask that my way would be to say, if a... Uh, are these abnormal uh, mosaic embryos, uh, is there pushback from uh, the reproductive endocrinologist to transfer these, or is this happening pretty routinely? There are a lot of REIs who are scared to transfer these embryos because the thing they fear the most is a woman having an abnormal baby. My answer is, in general, is that we see people with high-risk factors all the time for whom we are capable of getting them a definitive answer by the end of the first trimester. And that as long as a patient is fully uh, given informed consent, signs the appropriate documents that she understands, that there is a risk of having a baby with an abnormality, but that the odds are very good that we can find it, then I think in most cases it would be reasonable to transfer such embryos if better ones were not available. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we are talking about genetic testing, what it can and can't tell us. Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and they would be even better if you joined us. Clout now ranks us as the number two online influencer worldwide in the areas of infertility as well as adoption. There are three ways to connect with us on, we, I should back up, we hang out both at uh, Facebook, Pinterest, and Twitter. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. You can like our page, Creating a Family. Uh, it goes by the name Creating a Family. You can also join our very large and very supportive support group. It's a closed Facebook group. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash creating a family. We also hang out on Pinterest and Twitter. Twitter, and we go by at Creating a Family, both of those places. All right, uh, before we move off of pre-implantation genetic testing, uh, that testing that is done uh, with IVF, uh, Kelly asks, what kind of things can you test for? Is there a list? Do you pick and choose what to test for, or is it all just included? Or is it more based on the potential risk assessments given family medical history? And if that's the case, what would you do for a person who doesn't know much of their full family medical history, either, for example, adoptees or people who don't know or people who have lost touch with one of their parents? So let's talk about what is possible. That is an extremely good question. And the answer generally is that we can divide the problems here into those that are chromosomal, which are both whole chromosome and sub-chromosomal, like the microarrays we've just been talking about. And there are those that are Mendelian, like sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, SMA, et cetera. The chromosome ones we pretty much have talked about because when you look at the chromosomes, you're looking at as, uh, when you were doing, when we used to do just fish, they would do five chromosomes and 10 chromosomes then more. And now they're looking a little bit at every single chromosome. We can get more and more in-depth, but, of course, that produces more and more false positives like the mosaics that we've talked about, and that will sort itself out. In terms of the Mendelian disorders, I believe that <coughs> the simplistic uh, approach that we used 20 years ago, oh, you're African, let's do sickle cell, you're Jewish, let's do Tay-Sachs disease, you're Greek, let's do beta-thalassemia, has been expanded tremendously. And as we have learned that not everybody who thinks that they are Jewish is necessarily 100% European Jewish ancestry, and you can apply this to every single ethnic group you want to, that it is now better and, in fact, cheaper to do everything we can reasonably do for everybody. And that's why I have become a – now that some of the companies are using sequencing as opposed to genotyping, where you get a much more comprehensive answer, I am in favor of offering every couple, again, the, the age is irrelevant for these, infertility is irrelevant for these, the opportunity <coughs> to find out if both of the parents are carriers for recessive disorders uh, like cystic fibrosis, 
whether the mother is a carrier for hemophilia, which is an X-linked disorder, for fragile X, which is an X-linked disorder. And unfortunately, as a, as a person who runs a nationally known prenatal diagnosis center, we are seeing lots of couples who've gotten pregnant through IVF and had PGD even, who did not have the complete Mendelian screens, who in the first trimester, in the second trimester, all of a sudden discover that the partners are both carriers for spinal muscular atrophy, she's a carrier for fragile X, and then you have a, you know, forgive the politically incorrect term, the old Chinese fire drill of everybody running around at the last minute trying to figure out what's going on is the baby affected. And, you know, I wind up having to do in multiples relatively late uh, selective reductions because one of the fetuses turns out to be affected that we only found out about at 22 weeks, whereas we could have known this uh, basically uh, at 12 weeks through CVS or even have eliminated embryos who were affected through PGD. So we need a, we need a higher level of performance by everybody involved. So what you're saying is have before you undergo, or may, let me make sure I understand, before a man and a woman uh, undergo or a, an egg donor or a sperm donor undergo IVF, they should each individually be tested to see if what they may be carriers of? Yes. That's the most comprehensive way. Uh, the cheaper way is to test one of the partners, and only if the partner turns out to be a carrier for something do you then test the other partner. And if you're only going to test one, it's better to test the woman because things like fragile X go from mother to son, uh, not, the other way, not the other way around. Uh, but the more comprehensive way is to test both partners. However, again, let me make a very blanket statement. We have people who come into us all the time and say, oh, I've already been tested for everything. There is no everything test. We could literally spend you know, millions of dollars per patient testing everybody for every test that actually exists but we can cover well you know, into roughly the 99% range of common disorders by doing some fairly basic straightforward tests that require nothing more than a, a blood test from the adult. And then only if it turns out that the fetus is at risk do you then test the fetus. How often do is, is it happening now with uh, infertility patients before IVF that one or both uh, of the uh, parents have the the as you say kind of the basic screening for uh, uh, disorders uh, that would be passed from parent to child. Uh, that varies tremendously from program to program, location to location. In some liberal areas like New York, it's a very high percentage. In conservative areas, it's much lower. But I can't give you the actual numbers. Okay. Let me take a moment to thank a few more of our gold sponsor, sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we are able to bring you this show. We have Snowflakes Embryo Adoption. They now have a magazine. It is called Pathways to Family, and it covers topics relevant to both fertility and adoption. We have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson, a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law. They also have a gestational surrogacy matching program, as well as providing legal services for independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation. And Fairfax Cryobank, they have been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years, and they are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. Now, we're going to move to talking about genetic, prenatal genetic testing after conception, but before birth. And, and keeping in mind that one of the reasons that that uh, well not not certainly not the only reason but a reason that many couples are would choose to do pre-implantation genetic testing if they're going through IVF is because they don't want to face the decision of terminating a pregnancy which maybe is is a decision they may have to make if they get the abnormal results they may choose not to make it as well but if they that's uh, with testing that is done after conception so uh, a, a, a couple who has gone through infertility treatment is now pregnant, and as you have said, you believe that um, uh, prenatal 
genetic testing should be done, even if they have had uh, PG uh, pre implantation, either PGD or PGS uh, diagnosis or screening. All right, well, let's first of all talk about what techniques are currently available. You've mentioned two that's uh, uh, chronic VI sampling and amniocentesis. Can you explain both of those, what sure. they entail? Amniocentesis has been around for basically 50 years. And what it involves, <clears throat> typically 15 to 20 weeks of gestation, under ultrasound guidance, inserting a needle transabdominally into the fluid that surrounds the fetus and taking out about an ounce of that fluid. In that fluid are cells that are shed off from the baby's skin and peed out from the kidneys that we can use for genetic, genetic analysis for chromosomes, Mendelian disorders, and, and uh, various other chemicals like alpha-fetoprotein. Uh, the, the newer technique, which has been around for 35 years, it's not exactly new, <coughs> is chorionic fill sampling, where at the end of the first trimester, typically about 12 weeks, we take a tiny piece of the placental tissue. And this is, in my practice, I do about 70% of these in singletons transcervically, which literally feels like a pap smear. We put the patient up in stirrups with a speculum, and then after cleaning the cervix, I pass a catheter, which is nothing but a plastic straw, under ultrasound guidance into the placental tissue and take a small amount, about one-ten-thousandth of what's there out. And about 30% of the time, for logistical purposes, it's better to get at that placental tissue abdominally that feels like the amniocentesis. In very experienced hands, both of these procedures are very safe. I quote a risk of around 1 in 500. Uh, and they are equal. There used to be the perception that amniocentesis was safer than CVS, but a number of studies have now shown that in physicians who are equally facile in performing both procedures, CVS is as safe or safer than amniocentesis. And CVS has two tremendous advantages. One, by doing it in the first trimester, the woman has her privacy. When a woman is 11, 12 weeks of pregnancy, nobody knows she's pregnant until, unless she chooses to tell them. By the time you're 18, 19 weeks after an amniocentesis, you're visibly pregnant. You may have felt the baby moving. Everybody and their brother knows you're pregnant. The bonding process has accelerated. And if there is an abnormality, and if you would consider a termination, then it's that much more emotionally difficult to deal with that. The other thing is that there is a psychological transition from the state of, quote, I am pregnant to, quote, I am going to have a baby. And that bonding process, and I was the first one to publish on that 30 years ago, makes it much more difficult to uh, deal with these complex situations. So what I believe is that every single pregnant woman, based upon the data that we talked about a little while ago, showing a minimum of a 1% risk factor for a serious problem that can only be found by this microarray because it's not visible on ultrasound, should be offered to every single pregnant woman in the country, regardless of how, how old she is. How early in the pregnancy can CVS be done? I know you said it was normally done, but I, I have heard of people having it done at uh, 10 and 11 weeks. Is there any problem doing that? Uh, we basically, <coughs> When I was one of the cadre of people who developed this in the early 80s, and we were doing most of them back then at 9 to 10 weeks, mm -hmm. uh, there was a scare in the early 90s about increased risk of limb reductions, which is not true and only occurs if you do CVS at around seven weeks, which nobody ever does, which nobody does anymore. Uh, but that after 10 weeks, it is the back, that particular problem is no greater than the background risk. What I tell people is if you have a CVS, the chance of having a limb problem like, is about one in 1,700. And if you have no procedure at all, it's one in 1,700. One of the reasons that we've put it off till 12 weeks is so that we can do the nuchal translucency ultrasound, the thickness of the back of the neck at the same visit, because that is also an important determinant not only of chromosomal risk but of many other problems like cardiac abnormalities and Noonan syndrome. And so it's basically an efficiency matter to do it all at 12. But if a couple is high risk, you know, they've had a previous baby with Down syndrome, they're carriers for SMA, we'll push it up to, to 11, maybe even 10 and a half, 
But although, but you got to remember, the earlier we do a procedure, we may get less material, so it takes longer for the laboratory to get us the answer. So it's not necessarily uh, uh, the earlier is faster. The, um, placentas are like people. Some are tall and thin, some are short and thick. In this particular case, short and thick is the most desirable for me, so I can get a good specimen. Well, have there been, are there any blood tests that are, are, well, first of all, but before I talk about blood tests, are there any other techniques that are on the horizon uh, that are uh, for uh, prenatal test, genetic testing? Yes. Uh, for, for, yeah, like CBS. Well, well actually, the, the cell-free fetal DNA screening tests have taken off like wildfire over the past few years. <coughs> and in part, this is because patients and, frankly, many doctors under the complete wrong perception that the free fetal DNA blood test can do everything that the diagnostic test can do. In fact, we have seen the number of diagnostic tests fall in the country by anywhere from 30 to 50%. And unfortunately, we are now beginning to see babies born with anomalies that could have been found had the patient had a CVS or an amnio that were not capable of being found by the blood tests. I mean, a, f a friend of mine in Los Angeles, who's the CVS guy out there, had a paper uh, last summer that showed that his referrals had fallen 28% as people were relying upon this new test. However, his referrals for conditions that could not possibly have anything to do with the blood testing had also fallen 20%. Translation, people are drinking the Kool-Aid that these tests can do everything and are not showing up for the proper counseling. And so my plea to everybody is get proper genetic counseling by a you know, boarded medical geneticist, a, a boarded genetic counselor working under the supervision of a medical geneticist, and get the facts. Then do whatever you think is right for you and your family. The percentage of people who come into my office who go on to have a diagnostic procedure hasn't changed one iota. What's changing is people, and this applies to everybody, people are not coming in for the proper counseling because they've been led to believe they've already had everything that needs to be done. And that could not be further from the truth. And particularly for a couple, you know, the, the, the listeners to this kind of program who have often been through years of frustration work up tens of thousands of dollars worth of medical care to skip what is a very straightforward step to make sure they're doing all of this to take home a healthy baby, to me is just incredibly frustrating. What I think you said that you, you said uh, one in 100 risk, but you didn't say risk of what, I am assuming miscarriage. Serious neurological impairing disorder. Okay, so the risks of, let's, let's separate it, the risk of CVS for, let's talk about neurological problems as well as miscarriage. All right, let's, let's how would, how would CVS cause neurological problems? It doesn't cause it. It finds that the, oh, that okay, the baby no. has a problem with it. The okay, gotcha, I misunderstood you. In the okay, middle, so what okay, is for the, the average, for the average 30 For the average 35-year-old, mm -hmm. if I know nothing else about her, the chance of having a baby with a serious standard chromosome abnormality, such as Downs, is approximately 1 in 200. There are six things she can do with that risk. Number one, I can wish her good luck, shake her hand, and send her home and be done with it. If that's not good enough, we can try to modify that risk. We can do, uh, there are three ways we can do that. The test of the 90s and 2000s was the quad screen blood test we talked about that can find about 60% of Downs. The nuchal translucency ultrasound with a finger stick blood can find about 80% of Downs, and the free fetal DNA tests can find in the high 90s. However, as I've said over and over, <coughs> all of these are screening tests that only modify odds. If you want a definitive answer, we need to do the CVS or the amnio, and in very experienced hands such as mine, the risk is about 1 in 500. Ultimately, the risk of miscarriage is what you're right, saying. From CV, right, but that's on top of the background. If a 38-year-old woman walks into my office, shakes my hand, turns around, and walks out, and I never ever do anything else, 
at you know at 12 weeks, she still has a two and a half to three percent chance of miscarrying. Naturally, if we do a CVS, the 2.5 number goes to 2.7. However, what we know is that about as I said earlier, one percent of all children have a serious neurologic disorder, of which the microarray can find about 40 percent. About one percent of kids have autism. The microarray can find about 20 percent of those. Turn the other way, in women who have nothing else going on, the history is normal, the ultrasound is normal, even a karyotype is normal. The chance that the microarray finds a serious abnormality, not diagnosable by any other method, is at least one in 100. So in the middle 99%, it doesn't matter whether she does anything or not. The question that every couple needs to consider is if we're going to be wrong, which way would we rather be wrong? Would we rather take a small risk of having a baby with a serious problem versus a smaller risk, actually one-fifth the risk, of having a complication because we wanted to know that? And you literally have to compare one worst-case scenario against the other because, frankly, the middle doesn't count, which then reduces to, in my opinion, tell me what you fear the most, and we can reduce that at the expense of something else. What things can be tested for in prenatal testing, um, that is there more that could be tested for that it, than is tested for in pre-implantation? Or is it basically the same things, you just simply have more tissue with which to work with? No, we can test for a whole... There's a, if you have a specific molecular disorder, they can make a probe for it. The genetic testing that you're talking about with the so-called comprehensive screening is a more... Uh, high-definition karyotype, but it is not yet at the level of what we can do with a CVS specimen. Eventually, it may get there, but it's still only going to be a small number of cells that will have to be confirmed. We can do a lot more and a lot more accurately on CVS than we can do on PGD. All right. So what? how often do you come back with mosaic, uh, the, the issue of mosaicism that we talked about in pre-implantation genetic testing? How often is that an issue with either CVS, and is it less by the time you get to amniocentesis, or is it the same risk all along? The, about one in 200 patients who have a CVS have something ambiguous that we follow up with an amnio. What couples don't realize is that about one in 300 amnios have something ambiguous that I follow up with a fetal skin biopsy. There is no prenatal test that is guaranteed to be 1,000% perfect. However, all of these tests are over 99%, very clear the first time. Occasionally, they require some follow-up, but it's that those are tiny percentages as compared to what happens with PGD. Okay, and and how often, I I so often seem to hear, and I realize that I may be hearing from people who are the outliers because they're the ones who are struggling and the people who've had, you know, have had no confusing test results or not, but uh, uh, how often, I I so often, seems like I so often hear from women who the test results, uh, the genetic testing results are not, are just not real clear, and it's hard for them to know what the risk of going forward is. Uh, That happens occasionally. Look, the sad reality is there are some conditions like anencephaly, no brain, like trisomy uh, 13, that are fundamentally a death sentence, no matter what we do. And while it is very upsetting to have to give a couple that kind of information, it's straightforward from our perspective. When we have something new or ambiguous, and I don't know what's going to happen, how can I expect the couple to understand what's going to happen, yet they still have to make a decision? And so for those kinds of cases, it all comes down to the concept of how much risk are you willing to take to have this particular pregnancy? And the responses to that kind of situation vary by locality, vary by age, vary by history, vary by religious background, and there is no one right answer. Let me, mm-hmm. let me also make it perfectly clear that one of the fundamental tenets of genetics is that we are non-directive. We never tell anybody, oh, you should have an abortion, oh, you shouldn't have an abortion, how could you possibly do this or how could you possibly do that? 
We're here to provide information as best as we can so that couples can absorb it. And then with that information on board, make what they think is the best decision for them, and we support them under those circumstances, under any circumstances there. All right. We had talked some in uh, at the beginning about talking about genetic testing after birth. We really don't have much time. This will have to be the topic of another show. Um, however, uh, just a, a quick thought on how much people often are, are curious to know uh, what their disease risk factor is. Um, where are we in the state of the art or the state of medicine as, as being able to tell people post, uh, you know, adults or, or, or even parents of children um, what their risk factors are? Uh, uh, and and for, so what, what's the status of genetic testing well, uh, and being able to tell us that? That's highly variable depending upon the disorder we're talking about. It is well known that there are some genes that predispose towards early onset Alzheimer's. But it doesn't mean that you're going to get it. There are some disorders like IH, uh, idiopathic hypertrophic uh, subaortic stenosis in which I could, just by looking at the gene, no matter how old you are, I can tell you that you're going to have severe cardiac disease you know, by your 20s. And sometimes you can survive it and sometimes you don't. Uh, we know... <coughs> The same thing applies for a uh, hundred different disorders. Uh, in terms of how couples use that information, that's also highly variable. And this is where the concept of many of the direct-to-consumer genetic testing that give people information without the real availability of backup and in context, in many respects, is doing more harm than good. It's kind of like the shopping mall ultrasounds where they often miss anomalies, or, or even worse, they find one and, and don't know how to deal with it. I mean, both of, the, both of those are bad. And so the, that's one of the reasons the FDA significantly cracked down on companies like 23andMe for providing incomplete and very commonly misunderstood information. Okay, so um, buyer beware, and this will be the topic. We will come back to this. And I will just point out that there's been um, um, Dr. Uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee just came out, I think, very recently with a new book, The Gene and Intimate History, and it, it talks a, a lot about that, uh, about this, the, the whole issue that, we're, that we're, we're currently discussing. All right, so, um, and, and uh, one last question, um, and that is, uh, you were saying that the few, you, uh, pre-show you were telling me that uh, th- that uh, this particular year is important for what the future might be for genetic testing, both either prenatal or pre-implantation, because of it's a presidential election. And assuming, which we can't really assume at this point, that the, the race would be between uh, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, because we still have... Well, neither one of them. They both, they both may be the presumptive, but they are neither one the um, the, can, the candidate yet. But um, you wanted to, to 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 weigh in on uh, things that might how the outcome of the election may or may not influence um, genetic testing and the availability thereof. I think that the it's going to depend as much upon who controls Congress as who's president. But in previous conservative administrations like Reagan and George W., there were considerable constraints put on the ability of scientists to practice medicine, of tests that could be offered to couples, of, of issues of reproductive choice, etc. And also, the next president is going to get to appoint three or four Supreme Court justices, which will radically change the nature of the court one way or the other, and that everybody should think about that as we get into the election season. Yes, well, on that on that uh, uplifting note, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Mark Evans, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Uh, for all of our listeners, if you have enjoyed the show, please do us a favor and pop over to iTunes and give us a rating. It truly just takes moments, and it helps us out. We are by far the number one rated show on these topics over there, uh, and we really would like to maintain that position. So please do us a favor and do that. To get more information on Dr. Mark Evans or on Comprehensive Genetics, you can go to their website, which is Compregen, C-O-M-P-R-E-G-E-N, dot com, Compregen.com. 
thank you so much for listening to us today, and I will see everyone next week. Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Earlier this week, Claire Tippins shared a princess nickname generator, three pictures of her dog wearing a tutu, and two online quizzes, including what candy is your dream castle made of? Claire, your sharing has tipped the sugar scale and turned into oversharing. But have no fear, princess. Geico has something worth sharing with your internet kingdom, like how you can save hundreds on your car insurance just by visiting geico.com. No magic wand required. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, wah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at you, savings coming at you. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home an auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.